0: Amen. Thank you, Jake. Appreciate it. Go ahead and grab a seat. As I said earlier, my name's Luke. It's good to be here with you. Excited to teach this passage. Uh, it, it's a difficult passage. It's got some bear traps in it, but I think it's powerful for us today. Um, hey, one of my favorite Bible teachers is a guy named Alistair Begg. Maybe some of you have heard of him or heard his teaching. or his teaching. He's a Scottish guy. Um, with a Scottish accent, which doesn't hurt. He teaches in Cleveland, so obvious demotion there. Don't know what he did so bad to end up in Cleveland. Um, But I like him. He's a little bit of a smart mouth, real smart guy. He's got a real clean wit. He's able to kind of cut the word open, and I've always enjoyed listening to him teach and One of the things that I've heard come up in a few of his sermons, it's a little bit of a, a rule of thumb for him whenever he bumps into a difficult passage is this saying, which I've heard growing up, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. Anyone ever hear that when it comes to the Bible? It's a great, it's a great rule of thumb because let's face it, not everything in your Bible is plain and clear. It's not. Some of it is seemingly cloaked in a fog, those are usually the pieces of the Bible that provoke a lot of questions in us. We don't really know how to handle it. The Westminster Confession, which is a few hundred years old, kind of talks to it a little bit, speaks to this aspect of the Bible, and says that not all of your Scripture is equally plain and equally clear, yet at the same time, what we need to know for salvation, what is important for us to know is not just clear and accessible, but it's clear and accessible to not just the learned, but the unlearned, right? So what this means for you and me is when you read something in the Bible that you don't readily understand, you're not dumb. You're not dumb. It just might not be very clear. There's nothing wrong with saying whenever you bump into certain passages, I know not how, I know not why, but I just trust you, Lord. That's not a crutch. It's okay to say that. In fact, the older I get, the, the, the more knowledge I, I, the, I get from the Bible, the more experience I get from the Bible, I find more comfort in saying that. I know not how, I know not why, but I trust you, Lord, in everything that you do. Deuteronomy 29, it says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What this means for you and me is that the Lord will maintain to himself a certain level of mystery, a certain level of secrecy about himself, and mankind hates that, don't we? Don't you hate it? I kind of hate it. I want to define all the edges about God. I want to know everything there is to know. Mankind has always tried to put God in a box or have all the definitions, all the big questions answered, but we come up wildly short, and I think it's okay, really, to just be honest with ourselves by saying that out loud, that we just really don't know sometimes. I think that's the honest thing to do. I just don't know. But enough has been revealed in plain language. Clean, accessible, clear words for you and me to experience new life, growth in godliness, joy in the Lord. We can experience all of those things and what is concealed, what is secret with God, we can leave to God. We can trust him with it. This means that at no time are you called to be dishonest at no time are you called to pretend that something is clear when it's really not. You don't have to do that. You can struggle with what seems like it's not playing. And today, we're going to have some opportunities to do that with our passage today. But here's my promise as a pastor. I'm not going to gaslight you. And I promise I won't use misdirection. Don't look at this thing over here, which is really difficult. Let's, let's focus on something else over here. Just nothing to see. Let's keep moving. Instead, what we'll do when we handle the Word of God, we'll do so with integrity. Because as we stretch and we pull it out to understand it more, we have to understand it's doing the same for us. It's it's exegeting us. It's pulling us apart. It's interpreting who we are. It's going to be helpful for us today as we look at the life of David. We're getting close to the very end of our work and the story and the arc of King David. And he is in his last lap today. He blows it pretty big. It's, It's a little bit of a mixed finish line picture for him because he's got a great moment. He's got kind of a muddy moment. All at the same time. But it's gonna be helpful for you and me. Again, don't let anyone ever convince you that the Bible scrubs away all the grit and grime from its heroes. I think we've seen clearly over this whole summer series that it does not. David was a great man, David was a messy man. You can be both. You could be great, you could be a mess at the same time. Right? If David teaches us anything, he teaches us that. So let's get started in the passage. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 24 today, which is the last chapter of 2 Samuel. Just to remind you, we started in 1 Samuel and kind of we we galloped through the two books. We didn't walk through it very deeply. We just looked at his major episodes through 1 and 2 Samuel. Originally, they were built as one book. It was called the Book of Kingdoms. Um, Then it was changed to the Book of Samuel and then pulled out into two different volumes. And we're at the very tail end of the last volume. And we're going to read verses 1 through 4 and then 9. It'll be up on the screen, by the way, if you didn't bring a device or a a Bible with you. It's totally fine. Chapter 24, verse 1 Again, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. By the way, we don't know why. The Bible doesn't say clearly. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go, through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king sees it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. This is going to take them about 10 months to pull this off. Verse 9, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Okay, what's going on right here? If we were to pause this story. Basically, the main idea is God is inciting David to do something David is real giddy to do. He's delighted. Joab says, why are you delighted to do this? Is it David's happy to count these men or to have Joab do it anyway. I mean, it did take him 10 months, right? But God incited him to do it. That word means instigated. God stirred him to do this. God's not going to be okay with it, right? God's going to struggle with this as we're going to find out. Why would God do that? Why would God stir something in David that is not going to be pleasing before the Lord? It's a good question. It's not readily given to us. It's not super plain right here, right? This is not just any census. There's nothing wrong with counting. God is not anti-census. I mean, we take a census all the time, right, to learn how to run our country here. But this is a military census, which is virtually finding out how strong your army is. You do this whenever you're starting to process and think through conquering another nation and taking all of their stuff. And that's effectively what David's doing. He's happy. He's giddy. He's delighted to see, do we have enough guys, enough swords, enough chariots to whoop them and take all their stuff? That's the only reason you would ever even have a military census. And God, we're going to find out, has a big problem with this. A big problem. There's two theories why. Two. One is that Israel was always meant to be a beacon of joy to the world, not a terror to the world. God wanted Israel to be this nation where all the other nations of the world would look at Israel and see that's what God looks like, and this is how God loves his people, and that's how God's people loves him. I mean, they they were supposed to see who God is through the people, but they were never meant to be a a conquering terror that everyone needed to fear at all times. That's one theory. The second theory is is that David, if he was to conquer another nation, was to rely on who for strength? God. Not chariots, not swords, not 800,000 or 500,000 men, but God. I think both are probably right. Both are probably right, but the text doesn't really tell us. And we have to infer some things. The text doesn't tell us why God is angry. The text doesn't tell us why God is angry when he takes the census. It doesn't tell us why God is using a census in this moment. None of this stuff is very clear. We're having to draw and infer. But one thing we do know is clear. God does not want David to do this. But he doesn't even explain why. Here's a big principle for you and me. I mean, before we even go any further, when God says no, we must yield in submission even if we don't agree or understand, right? Even if we don't understand. And God is under no obligation at all to explain himself to you or to me. He is free to hold mystery to himself. He is free to be secretive with his sovereign care of humanity. And friends, our culture hates this too. We hate this. When it comes to authority in our lives, we follow typically when we agree or when we understand, but usually both, right? Which is why you speed on the interstate. That's why we speed on the interstate. Why? Because we don't agree. We understand it says 70, right? But what do we tell ourselves? I'm good for about 10% over. You could go 77. They'll probably not pull you over. Everyone in here knows the 10% rule, right? So you're like, I don't agree with 70. I'll go 77. But if the government overnight said, you know what, we'll just make it 77, What would you do? Well, I'm gonna go 82, right? I'm gonna go 82, and then 88, and then 90, and then everyone's car falls apart because they're not really made to go that fast for very long. But you see what I'm saying? Unless we agree with the authority, understand it, and say, I believe you, we we usually kind of push back. We resist it. it. But we would never stand for that as parents when it comes to our kids, when we as parents are authorities, right? Which is what has come to coin the phrase, because I said so, right? Because I said so has become the, the, uh, the draw for uno card that we slap down in the middle of the pile to just end all discussion. Your child wants to make a water park in the front yard with the hose. Your child wants to eat a Pop-Tart at 2 a.m. on the brand new couch. Your, your child wants to run around the house in the neighborhood with no clothes on and you tell them you cannot do that. And what do they say? Why? Why? Because I said so. Because I said so is basically us saying, I have a bunch of reasons. Or maybe I just have one reason. But you know what? I'm under no obligation to tell you anything because I said so. Because I'm the authority and I'm in charge. We use it all the time. But here's the thing about your toddler. They think you're stupid. Toddlers think that you're the moron. They think that their wisdom is wiser than your foolishness. They feel you're oppressive. They feel you don't understand. That's how we handle authority. It's just the cycle of mankind. You know what's interesting about this is the delta, the difference between God's infinite and transcendent wisdom is so much bigger than the delta between our wisdom and our kids' wisdom, right? I mean, the difference between what we understand and what God understands. I mean, listen, much of what God says is not going to make sense to you. You want to know why? We're spiritual children. We have two-pound brains that don't always work, at least until our third cup of coffee, and then still it's debatable, right? We don't even know why we do things. Much of what God says is not going to make simple sense to us, but by refusing the authority of God where we don't totally understand is us saying, I will not follow a God who is wiser than me. I won't follow a God if he's wiser than me. I mean, consider the Garden of Eden. Just consider all the way back. God says, do not eat of the tree. He doesn't tell him why. He just says, don't. He says, because I said so. Don't eat of the tree. And where does trouble start? Whenever they viewed his wisdom as oppressive and their own wisdom as superior. That's where things started to spiral. And I think what's interesting is that we understand, I mean, let's take wisdom off the table and replace it with power. We all understand that God's power is so far above our power. We can't measure, we can't fathom God's power. And we all can probably pretty quickly agree with that, right? I mean, we build, we're build we powerful people. We build some things. We build pyramids. Allegedly, no one even knows how, but they're there, right? We've, we've built freeways. We've built buildings. We've built dams. But when we look at what God has built with his power, we see deep ocean trenches, we see tornadoes, we see like the edge of an edge of a galaxy that's been spinning since existence has started and we're like, yeah, we built a real impressive telescope and we could barely see something that looks like it could be something we don't even know. We understand that God's power is so far from ours, but when it comes to wisdom, we're like, yeah, I'm on the same playing field. I understand just, just everything that God understands. It, it, it is the height of arrogance it's the height of pride of mankind. I say all this because we need to keep it in mind when we look at a passage like this. This military census that David is so giddy and excited and delighted to do was stirred up in him by God, and there's just not a lot that's clear. There's not a lot that's plain. In fact, I want to look at something else. I'm going to inject some other turbulence into this passage by looking at something that is actually more mysterious than it is obvious to us. If you were to go to 1 Chronicles, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, about how 1 Chronicles walks alongside 1 and 2 Samuel for different reasons, but it will tell some of the same stories. So it's not total redundancy, there's just texture there, right? And when you get to 1 Chronicles 21, the very first verse says this, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. I only bring that up now because people have brought this to me in the last 20 years. Luke, there's a contradiction in the Bible. In in this part of Samuel, 2nd Psalm, it says God did it, but over here it says that the devil did it. So Luke, who did it? The devil or God? Is this a contradiction? No, it's not. It's added detail. You're getting a peek behind the scenes. That's what this is. The Lord is using not only David's delight in his hunger, but the enemy's. He's using the enemy's capacities to accomplish his brilliant will, his kind will for his glory and for your good. That's what we're seeing. Functionally, God is using David and the enemy as tools in his hand. Tools. And God does this a lot. If you go to Isaiah 10, read the whole chapter when you have time, you will find God talking about the brutality of Assyria, this wicked nation. And how God is going to use them as a club in his hand to do what? Discipline his own people. Why would he do that? For their good and for his glory? You're going to find in Genesis the wickedness of Joseph's brothers who are nothing more than tools in God's hands as sovereignty is understood as providence marches forth. Why? For for the salvation of so many people who are hungry for his own glory. We're going to find it in Exodus as he hardens the heart of Pharaoh. Why? To use Egypt and Pharaoh as a tool. Why? For the good of his people and for his own glory. We see it in the Gospels. A wicked Roman cross, wicked leaders, that God will use his tools in the redemption of his own people for his own glory. Over and over and over and over again, you will see the same thing repeated. By the way, this is what led Martin Luther to say, even the devil is God's devil, That causes people to struggle right there. That that little phrase he kicks out. Do we not see this in Job? Where the enemy walks, parades in front of the Lord, doing what? Asking for permission? He has to ask for permission to afflict Job. He's basically saying, how long will you let my leash be before I can do something to afflict your guy? Listen, if you're new to the Bible, the devil is not an equivalent power to the lord he is on a leash he is on a leash god accomplishes his will for his glory and he does not always use unicorns and flowers to pull it off he doesn't and if if you struggle with this and it's okay if you do but if god cannot hold his own mysterious plan to himself then you're left with just shrinking him to your size you're making him in your image I would submit your God needs to grow, expand. There is a caveat on all of this, of course, because God does use wicked people with wicked hearts doing things that they want to do. He does use that, but he also restrains what mankind wants to do. Without God's intervention, David would be worse here. Joab would be worse. I would be worse. Pharaoh would be worse. Assyria would be worse. The the devil himself would be worse. I mean, without God intervening, everything would be worse. As the Bible so poignantly says, all the thoughts of mankind would be evil constantly. That's what happens without God's intervention. And this is why David doesn't blame God for all of this. You think he would, wouldn't you? I mean, as soon as David realized he had done something wrong, that's where I would would assume David would be like, Yo, wait a minute. I didn't even want to do that. I woke up that morning and I wanted to go hit the gym. I had a book I wanted to read. I had a plan. And then robotically, you just put in me this desire I didn't even have to count people. Count people? Why would I ever want to do that? That's not how that went down. He was excited to do that. He wanted to do that. God interfered. David says it was his idea to do this. David repents for this. This is why this theology is important for us if we were to drill down on it. If you cannot make space for God's providence according to God's wisdom, for God's glory, then the gospel's just not gonna make any sense. It can't. It can't make it because then you're just left with the story of a limited God full of limitations, boxed in, who just got lucky trying to respond to just dominant mankind taking charge. That's not the gospel at all. This is why Paul says in Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things, are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. This is a tough passage because not everything has been made clear. Not everything is plain. We do have to infer things. But I am totally fine, even before you saying, I know not how, I know not why, but I trust. Because God's trustworthy. He's made promises. He's kept promises. He's trustworthy. Let's look at verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent the pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Okay. David had been fixated on numbers for 10 months now and now he's got a few more to consider. And that's what kind of Punishment and discipline is coming their way as a nation. I think he chooses what we would have all chosen. I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I mean, I know it's going to hurt more, but the three days is quicker. Let's get it over with. That's typically how we are. But he also says, I want to fall in the Lord's hands. He's merciful. Those barbarians, if we're being chased by men, I can't speak for that. Right? A recession, who knows? But God, I can deal with. But here's the big question that we are okay to ask. You are okay to ask this question. Is 70,000 men an overreaction? Seems like a lot of people. It is. It's the population of Oak Ridge, Maryville, and Seymour combined. Let it sink in. It's a lot of guys. That's 70,000 households. It will never have a father, never have a husband. Is this too much? It might seem extreme. I want you to know that God is showing mercy here by stopping the trajectory of this nation it's about to bring more pain into the world through warfare. Interesting how they were just counting men who could bear the sword, and that's exactly what God goes after. God is saving them from a much more devastating judgment later on. We understand this more than we think we do. Listen, I, I would hate what a guardrail could do to the front of my truck, Right? I don't have, like, a pimped-out truck, but I want it to be nice. I don't even like it when the headlight covers get yellow. I'm like, gosh, I'm not even going to try to polish it. I'm just going to get new ones, you know. I don't like the way it looks. I'm a little bit vain about that. But if I hit a guardrail, I'd be like, oh, I don't even want to drive it anymore. I'd be all depressed about it. More sad would I be if the guardrail wasn't there and it went off a cliff. We get this. God loves you too much to let you ruin your life with sin. Friend, You'll find guardrails, and it will always feel like an overreaction when you slam into it. (laughs) But God's discipline of his children, like a good dad, is an act of deep love. Oh, it's an act of mercy. He's preventing the judgment of a much worse situation down the line. Exodus 34, whenever you're confused, whenever it comes to things like suffering, is a great It's a great little passage, the sixth verse of that chapter, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, he's so merciful and graceful. Mercy just means he's not giving you what you do deserve. And that's his posture, his predominant posture. Grace is he's giving you favor that you don't deserve, And and then we have this promise that he is slow to anger. His predominant posture is not to be vengeful, severe, and angry. His predominant posture is to be merciful and graceful. He abounds in steadfast, nonstop love. But still, we're free to ask harder questions if we really want to be hard and honest. Well, what about the innocent? Out of the 70,000, what about the innocent? You know, the uncomfortable truth, especially in a passage like this, is there are no innocents. Not really. I mean, the struggle we have with suffering, and we looked at this in great detail a couple years ago, two or three years ago, I don't remember when we did this, but we went through a series on suffering, on the various different shapes and sizes of suffering and how we interact with them and what God's doing and not doing in the process. And one of the things we noticed in that series is that our struggling with suffering is whenever we consider it a senseless foreign intruder, especially when we see ourselves as morally wholesome and upstanding and full of virtue. It's important. The more we are persuaded by our own wholesome righteousness, the more we are persuaded that we are full of virtue at all times, the more we're going to question God's wisdom whenever suffering comes. The more this world stops making sense to us. Because every time you see a tragedy, you will see it as senseless and hateful, and will look like God is nothing but intrusive. Oh, Friends, listen, people walk away from Jesus every day because of this topic right here. This is really what gets at it. For a lot of people that just take big steps away from Christ, away from Christianity, not all the time, but I'd say most of the time the people I bump into, this is where it starts to orbit. And you're probably gonna see it more. I mean, the newest figures are out, one in six, and this is in the last 25 years, One in six adults in the last 25 years have stepped away from from Christ. One in six, right? To the tune of 40 million total. Which, what that means is, we are seeing the largest religious shift in Western history right now. This generation, the largest shift we've ever seen before. Because when suffering comes and we don't trust God it can only look like an unjust God unjustly blasting us even though we're innocent, wholesome, and adorable. But it mischaracterizes us and it mischaracterizes God at the same time. But the more we sense our own fractured heart, the more we see our own corruption, the more amazed we're going to find ourselves that God's predominant posture is one of mercy over severity. I mean, even David's not questioning God's wrath here. That's why we see in verse 14, he calls him merciful. Always merciful. God's dominant posture towards you is to save you. It's, It's not to blast you. It's so important that you see that. And in our passage, God relents. It says this, so God relented. I think it says it in verse 16, which means that he stopped that he ran its course with the discipline at that point. Let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean he regretted and changed his mind. Some of you are reading out of the King James. You're free to read out of whatever you want, but if you do, it says repented, that God repented here. That's a bad translation. God has no need to repent or regret anything. We have that in the Bible. Numbers 23, it says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God has said, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? What we see in this word relent, it's just some turbulence with how we come and interact with the Hebrew language. But what's happening is, is the time of this challenge had run its course. That's why he says, staying the hand, right? He just says, stop. God is relenting by force, not by regret, okay? But I will say this. It's actually in this moment right here that the passage pivots. And we get a glimpse. If you have eyes to see it, There are two instances where you could see the gospel peek through this passage in a way that leads us on how to read the rest of it. All right, we see this thing in 2 Samuel 24. So go back to your passage, 2 Samuel 24, verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All of this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, "May the Lord your God accept you." But the king said to Aruna, "No, but I will buy it from you for a price that will not offer burnt, sacrifice or burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing." So, David brought or bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So, the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. David has this really cool moment here. There's a mess as much as he is. God is really invested in this moment. Because he says, First of all, let your hand fall upon me, strike the shepherd that this set of sheep can go free. This is the feel and the flow of the gospel. Someone has to pay that others may live. We're seeing a glimpse of that here, but I also want to point your attention to this threshing floor. And you're not expected to know this unless you've been a student of the Bible for some time, but this is on a patch of ground on Mount Moriah. Just so you know, to put it into context, this threshing floor is the same place where Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac before the Lord. What did God do? God relented. The challenge stopped. The knife was stayed. You can say it that way. And Isaac lived because a ram was found in the thicket there that became a substitute for Isaac. That happened. That happened 14 generations before this moment. After this, Solomon would build the temple on this exact same threshing floor. Where sacrifices would come and stay every day, every week, every year. The knife would not be stayed. It would continually be a constant set of sacrifices. And then 14 generations after this, on the same place, there would be a better sacrifice who would come and satisfy God, satisfy his justice, a better David, a better shepherd. Christ. This is where we gain Christ. You and I, we would need our own shepherd as wayward sheep, and we would find Him and Jesus. I gotta be honest, I never get tired of this, the symmetry of the gospel, the balance of the gospel, the flow of the story of the gospel. It never gets old to me. Where we see God's kindness peek through, his mercy, his grace. Why do we care though? I mean, all of this might be true, but it doesn't mean that we care. Why do we care about this? I mean, once we get through the textual difficulties and we looked at as many as we had time for, I want you to see that at the end of David's story, that he was a great man and he was a great mess. And both can be true. And some of you are here, you're a mess. You feel like it anyway, right? You feel like a great mess. What you need to know is that God is active in your life as a mess. He's not saying, I need you to clean yourself up before I come close to you as a mess. You're a little too messy. If he said that, it wouldn't be the gospel anymore. It would be a very, very different story, not one worth telling. Listen, this phrase that David says here, and this is why I care about this. He says, I have sinned. I have sinned. Did you notice that he said this before he was confronted by the prophet? That was not the case a few chapters ago in chapter 12 when he was sleepwalking and Nathan had to come along whenever he had sinned by murdering a man and stealing his wife man if you remember that passage this prophet Nathan he had to like tell a story he had to kind of lead him all the way there before David would say i have sinned it took some work i could imagine David going great story why are you telling me this again what's going on right now and it took a lot it took like a giant lever to get David there here not so much he's grown you could always determine where you're at by how you repent. It is the spiritual toddler that thinks that he or she is wise, not broken, innocent, wholesome, virtuous, not in need, does not need grace, does not need mercy. That's a toddler. David has been stretched out and made bare before us so that we could see all of his issues, so we could see that he is a mess. And he is. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. Sure, he's a poet. He's a king. He's great. He's a mixture, just like all of us, a mixture. And even in our mess, we can grow. We can pray prayers, honest ones. I have sinned, Lord. You have not. You have no need to repent. I have a lot of need to repent. I'll worship you when it's costly to me. I will follow you when you're obscured. I'll follow you when I don't understand. I'll follow you when I don't totally agree. I will trust in you when it is hard. I will rejoice in you always. We're free to pray prayers like that. And when we fail God, he loves us no less. No less. I mean, I care about a passage like this. Friend, listen, for the rest of your life, you're going to bump into places in God's words where you're just not going to know what he means. You're not going to know exactly what's going on. You are free to say, I know not how, I know not why, I trust the Lord, he's trustworthy, he's good. Again, it's the spiritual toddler that only follows to the limit of what they can understand, even though again, we don't even understand why we do what we do. It's the spiritual infant that only follows where there is agreement, and toddlers are always wise in their own eyes. I'll also say I care about this passage quite a bit because when you and I are on mission as missionaries, and listen, if you're new to Legacy, we do believe that if you're a Christian, you're a missionary to a city, to your realm, to your orbit. When on mission to a city, you'll be asked questions that will confront the very attributes of God, and you won't know what to say. Questions usually start off with, well, why would God do fill in the blank, whatever it is, the most horrible thing that they could possibly think of, right? They'll throw it right in your face. It's okay for you to say, listen, I'm not quite sure. I don't really know. I could find out. I don't know that, but this is what I do know. You're free to do that. I think one of the things that I struggle with, maybe it's something you struggle with, is wanting to know all the answers to the questions just in case someone springs one on us that we might not be ready for right? This freedom to just say, I don't know everything there is to know about God. He is mysterious in some ways. It removes that inhibition. It takes it away, right? I mean, listen, even if you had what you think are all the answers, I guarantee nine minutes into the conversation, they're going to spring something on you you were not ready for. There's just really no scenario where you have all the answers to all the questions, period. Period. In fact, I think the people that I find that are most enamored with discovering every single answer to every single question end up not really ever being a very good evangelist anyway. See, there's a great gospel story for the saved, for those who are close to Christ. We can trust God. Remember, when no human being knew what was going on with Jesus in a tomb, we had no clue what God was up to, full of questions Talk about being obscure. Talk about not knowing what's good. Talk about not being clear or plain. Jesus is in a tomb. While we had no answers to anything, what was he doing? Redeeming the cosmos? Filling the book of life? (laughs) He was busy at work. Why? Because he's trustworthy. We could trust him. We could trust him. You can see not how, you can see not why, and still know that God is good and kind in all things. You could trust him. And listen, if you're far from Christ, there's great gospel news for you as well because you are free to say, I have sinned. You're free to be a mess. If you're not, then the gospel's not good. But I promise you this, the gospel is not a story telling you how to clean yourself. It's not. It's a gospel story that says you're free to bring all of your broken pieces of your regrets, all of your broken pieces of what was done to you and what you have done to Christ and say, I'm a mess, I've sinned. You haven't done anything wrong, Lord. No reason for you to repent. There's a lot of reason for me to repent, though. I just give it all to you. Because Christ, even more than David, said, let your hand fall upon me so that the sheep go free. I am the shepherd. Let your hand fall on me. And that it did. Justice reigned on that day just as purely as love did for you and for me.